I don't know what God's up to tonight, but I know he's up to something. And I'm excited to see what he has in store for us. So let's converge on Genesis chapter 37. Genesis is not a very difficult book to find. It's the very first one in your Bible. You don't even have to use the table of contents for this one. If you'll just keep turning, you'll get past the contents and you'll run right smack into the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 37, I'm excited about the word the Lord has given me to share with you tonight. Now I'm going to warn you up front, we're going to cover a lot of ground in these next few moments, but it's action-packed, and as a matter of fact, over the years, it has become one of my favorite biblical narratives. So we're going to be taking a peek into the life of Joseph, and it's a fascinating one. So to get you up to speed as we enter into our text of focus, Joseph was one of 12 brothers who was born to a man named Israel. Now, Israel, who was Joseph's father, loved him more than any of his other brothers. He was the favorite child. Some of you can relate to that. Some of you know, yeah, I know what it's like to be, to be the sibling that the parents don't like as much as the baby of the family or whatever. And Joseph was that guy. Like, he was dad's favorite. And you may be familiar with this story, and you may not be familiar with this story, but Joseph is the guy, if you've ever heard of Joseph in the coat of many colors, this is that guy. So Israel gave Joseph as a gift because he was his favorite, this coat of many colors. And in the narrative kind of prior to where we're going to get into, Joseph at one moment has a dream. And in the dream, he's given a vision by God of how one day his brothers are going to be bowing before him as he's set up in a position of power. So one day he's telling this dream to his brothers who already can't stand him because he's the favorite child of the family. And he's like, Bros, listen up, I had this wild dream the other night. I had this dream, get this, I was in a position of power and every one of y'all were bowing down at my feet. So as you can imagine, Joseph's brothers didn't care too much about him. As a matter of fact, they hated him. And I feel like hate would even be an understatement for how they felt towards their youngest sibling. And so as we enter into this story, these jealous emotions that his brothers are feeling they're about to boil over. And that's where we pop in in Genesis chapter 37 and verse 12. It says, Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. You've got to love them Old Testament words. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where are they pasturing the flock? And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. And they saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. And they said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will see, or then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben, Reuben was the oldest out of all the brothers, heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore. 
And they took him and threw him into a pit, and the pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. Looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. And let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then many a night traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit, sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. I want to talk to you tonight about the design paradigm. Turn to somebody around you and tell them it's by design. It's by design. It's by design. A design paradigm, by definition, is the underlying system of ideas that causes a range of solutions to become obvious. In other words, it takes a problem or it takes an equation and it passes it through its parameters to find an answer. In the world of algorithms, we have algorithmic design paradigms. Basically, they are different classifications of algorithms that get used. One of those specifically is called a greedy algorithm. This particular class of algorithm is designed to find the optimal choice for that instant moment that it's in. It never takes into consideration future outcomes or problems or parameters. It just renders the right now quick and easy fix answer. This paradigm class is the majority of what is used with social media. It's designed to give you the quick, most optimal choice or recommendation or suggestion that it thinks will satisfy you for the here and now moment. But in essence, what I want to help you see in this is that God has a design paradigm in place. It's his underlying system that we call sovereignty that considers all of life and produces answers for it. And we don't always see it's working. Sometimes it's hidden from plain sight, but it's there nonetheless. And so Joseph has been jumped by his brothers. They take his favorite coat, they toss him in a pit, and they sit down and they eat their lunch in front of him. As if it's not bad enough, they throw their own brother in this pit, which fortunately for him was what they decided to do. They were conspiring to kill him. Now I know some of us, how many of you have siblings here? How many of you ever threatened to kill your sibling? How many of you were actually serious? Don't raise your hand. Most of us have siblings that we squabble with from time to time. And in the heated moment, we might actually think, I'm going to kill you. I can't stand you. Get out of my room. Don't come in here one more time. And so this is more than just like a family squabble. I mean, they were conspiring to legitimately kill Joseph. That's how bad they hated him. But instead, they decide to throw him in a pit, and they sit down, and they're like eating their bologna sandwiches in front of him. They're probably like peeling the crust off, throwing it in there. Hey, dreamer, how about some crust? Because nobody likes the crust. Come on, if you like the crust in here tonight, talk to me afterwards. we got bigger issues to deal with in your life than what you realize they got going on. So they're eating their lunch in front of him. they got him tossed in this fit, and they look up, and they see this, this, this group of Ishmaelites coming towards them, and they hatch this idea, hey, let's sell them into slavery. Why kill him? Well, maybe we can get a couple of nickels for the guy. It's better than nothing. That way we don't have to deal with his blood being on our hands. We can come up with this story. We can, we can take that stupid coat dad gave him. 
We can dip it in blood and we can tear it and we can take it back home. But like, look, man, hey, obviously you sent Joseph to him and he ran into a bear or a lion or something. He's done. There was nothing left. Whatever it was, ate him bone and all. And so as these traders passed by, they pulled him up out of the pit and they sell him for a few coins and off to Egypt, Joseph is taken. And from there, the plot begins to thicken even more. So we got to go over to Genesis 39. Genesis 39 and verse 1, it says, Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, so the traders have taken him down to Egypt. And Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. And the Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. And his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he had made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him he had no concern about anything, even the food that he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, so Joseph was a good-looking cat. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. So day after day after day, Potiphar's wife would proposition Joseph trying to get him in bed. Verse 11, but one day when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. Now Joseph then lost his second coat. This time for very righteous reasons. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called the men of her household and said to them, see, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. And she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant, whom you have brought among us, came in to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. You see what she's doing? She's accusing him of trying to rape her. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made it to succeed. So here's the first thing you need to know in this paradigm is that stuff happens. Stuff happens. Just to recap real quick, Joseph, at no fault of his own, is hated by his brothers. 
He's thrown into a pit. He was then sold into slavery, bought by this man named Potiphar, taken to Egypt, falsely accused by this man's wife of trying to sexually assault her, and then thrown unjustly into prison. Now, Joseph was a righteous man. Joseph loved the Lord. Joseph walked obediently to his commands, and yet look at all the stuff he's having to endure and experience at the hands of unrighteous people. Doesn't seem like a fair shake for Joseph. But we can't overlook that even in the midst of what he's going through, God has never left him. Even in the midst of him being sold into slavery, when he ended up at Potiphar's house, it says the Lord was with Joseph and caused everything that he did to succeed. Even when he was falsely accused and thrown unjustly into prison, the prison guard saw that the Lord was with Joseph, and even then God caused him to find success in a prison. Now, who would have thought success could have ever been equated with shackles? And yet the Lord's blessing still rested upon Joseph. So even though he's going through some bad things, we can't overlook the fact that he has still been blessed along the way. Listen, one of the things you can be assured of in this life is that stuff happens. By design... God will allow us to face all kinds of situations and circumstances. Good, bad, ugly, beautiful, joyful, sorrowful, healing, painful. You may get a job, you may lose a job. You may have great health, you might get a diagnosis. You may experience success or you may taste failure. You might get the joy of seeing the miracle of life born and then have to endure the morning of life lost. You may get the joy of victory, but also understand the pain of tragedy. One thing is guaranteed in this life, God will allow you to face any and all kinds of situations and circumstances. As his children, we are not immune to the aspects that accompany a life lived in a corrupted and depraved world. Now, i got to take a moment to address something here because I've seen it a lot lately for some reason. And I don't know why exactly, but it just keeps coming across my sight. Everybody wants to understand or have it explained to them why God allows evil things to take place. But the funny thing is, nobody seeks to understand why God would even give a good thing to begin with. Everybody wants it explained, well, if God is so good, if he's so loving... If he's so just and he's so righteous, then why does he allow all these evil things to take place in the world? And my question is, is how can a God who is so just and so holy and so righteous give any good thing to a depraved and wretched generation of people to begin with? The fact that he even allows the sun to rise upon our lives each and every day is a gift of his grace. As a matter of fact, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus actually talks about how 
the Father causes the Son to rise and to set on both the righteous and the unrighteous. He causes the rain to fall on both the righteous and the unrighteous. And so in the midst of this, and I don't know, we may get into this one day in a whole another deal, but especially amongst your generation, there's a whole lot of this talk of deconstructing your faith. This whole breaking down and questioning of everything that you've ever been taught about God and his word or things that you have been brought up to believe because of your family members, your mom, your dad, or your granddad, pulling that down and tearing it apart and finding out that it's really not all that true and it's not as good as everybody painted it out to be, that this God's really some wicked, evil being that does not allow us any freedom of choice and that completely just overrules and overruns our lives with this arrogant attitude. So it's time to deconstruct our faith and get away from all that and realize that God really isn't who he claims to be. That is so far from the truth. God is everything that he claims to be. And the fact that he would put on flesh like we have and come to this earth and give his life is the greatest testament of love and grace and mercy and forgiveness that could ever be displayed. The stuff happens in this life and instead of merely asking or seeking to understand the why, I think it would be better if we understood the design. There's more to it than we know so often. Underlying whatever the situation or the circumstance may be, I promise you, is God's design. We're, uh, we're in the why phase right now with Graham. Everything is why. Everything that we say to the kid, everything that we tell him to do is met with a Why? Graham's time to go to bed. Why? Graham, we need to eat breakfast. Why? Graham, we're going to take a ride in the car. Why? Graham, we're going to put our dinosaurs up. Why? Why, 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 why? Everything is met with a why right now. So we're in the why season of life with our toddler. And you know, I begin to understand, I think, why God installed that into all kids. And I think it's because he wanted us to see a reflection of what he manages as a father to us. Every single one of us, why God? At some point in time, just about all of us in here, I would guarantee have wide God over something. And I would imagine Joseph was no different. I would imagine when Joseph was in the pit, he was probably like, why? I imagine when Joseph was falsely accused and thrown into prison while he was there, he's probably like, hey, God, I just got one question. Why? Why is this happening? I'm trying to honor you. I'm trying to live my life for you. I haven't done anything to deserve this. Why is this all taking place? And just as we explained to our son when he asked why the reason or the design behind what we're doing or sometimes even giving the simple response of just trust us. This is why God will do the same thing at some point with all of us as his children. It's okay to ask why. But you need to understand in the midst of that is that it's because his design is at work. And you may not always see and you may not always understand and always may not be made obvious to you in that moment, but your stuff is happening by design. There's a reason why God has allowed specific things to enter into your life. There's a purpose behind why he's allowing you to be in those specific places at those specific moments and times. Your stuff is happening by design. And the reason why it's happening by design is because it goes along with the second part of the paradigm. 
Stuff happens in a determined order. With a God who is sovereign over all things, nothing happens at random or out of order. So walk through this with me as we find it in Joseph's life. I want to I set this in front of you to say maybe, maybe it's more than a coincidence. Maybe, just maybe, it's more than just a coincidence. If you go back to chapter 37, and we get in at the beginning of, of Joseph's story a little bit, we're going to back up into verse 5. And I told you about the dreams that he was having earlier. It says, now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. And he said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. And then he dreamed another dream, and he told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. So Joseph dreams that one day his entire family is going to bow before him as a leader, as someone who is in a position of power over them. Now hold on to this key detail. He was 17 years old when he had these dreams. So we fast forward to what we've already read through, and we see him get sold into slavery. That brings him to Egypt. That is another key detail in this story. 17 years old, he has a dream. He's sold into slavery. That ends up directing his path to Egypt. He was then bought by Potiphar, who was one of Pharaoh's top servants, which would inevitably land him in prison. Now let's go over to Genesis chapter 40. Genesis chapter 40, Joseph's in prison. So let's take a peek into the prison. It says, Some time after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. Now the captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. And they continued for some time in custody. And on one night, they both dreamed the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt who were confined in the prison. Each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. And when Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? <laughs> I mean, they're probably like, we're in prison, dude. <laughs> it's like a common thing to be smiling up in the joint. <laughs> but anyway, they answered, they said to him, we've had dreams. There's no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God. Please tell them to me. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph, and he said to him, in my dream there was a vine before me. And on the vine there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. And Joseph said to him, this is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me 
when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head, and in the uppermost basket there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. He's thinking, man, if things worked out that good for the cupbearer, i got to get some good news out of my dream too, right? And Joseph answered and said, this is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. He's thinking, so good so far. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree. And the birds will eat the flesh from you. Didn't work out too good for the baker. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but he forgot him. So while in prison, Pharaoh locks up these two servants of his who have dreams while they're there. And Joseph interprets them. And then he asks the cupbearer to remember him before Pharaoh. Now, sometimes there's little funny nuances and details in Scripture that I think we look over sometimes. Is the fact that Joseph asks the cupbearer to remember him before Pharaoh and not the baker. Why? Because he knew the baker was six and be. Ain't going to do him no good. He ain't going to be remembering. He ain't going to be dead. So Joseph tells the cupbearer, when you get out, do me a favor. Mention me before Pharaoh so I can get out of this prison because I'm not even supposed to be here. And so they get released. But the cupbearer forgets. Genesis 41. We're trucking right along. Told you a lot of ground to cover. Everybody take a deep breath. Let it out. Here we go. After two whole years, two years Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. Dreams are weird. And Pharaoh awoke, and he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled. And he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all of its wise men. And Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with his own interpretation. And a young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him up out of the pit. 
And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. Now, we're going to skip all the way down to verse 25 because all that happens in the midst of that is Pharaoh just repeats the dreams that he has to Joseph for his interpretation. So it says, Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh. God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but then after them there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow it, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. Now therefore let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it, that the food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine. So this proposal pleased Pharaoh and all of his servants. Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand, clothed him in garments of fine linen, and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot, and they called out before him, Bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zephenath Paneah, and he gave him in marriage to Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Joseph was 37 years old. Remember the number I told you earlier when he first had the dreams? 17. Joseph was 37 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly, and he gathered up all the food of these seven years which occurred in the land of Egypt and put the food in the cities, putting every city food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph, Asenoth, the, pot, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the first Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship in my father's house. In the name of the second son, he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. For two years, the cupbearer had forgotten about Joseph until Pharaoh started dreaming. No one can figure out his dreams. All of his top advisors, all these magicians, all these weird divination people staring into the glass ball and all that good weird witchcraft stuff. Nobody could figure out what Pharaoh was dreaming about until Joseph walks in. He's pulled out of prison. He interprets the dreams, and then he's placed second in command, 37 years old, when that took place. What I'm trying to show you is, all right, let's wake it up a little. I know it's a lot of reading, but here comes the good part right here. What I'm trying to show you is, is that God's design has a determined 
order. At the right moment, God gave Joseph those dreams as a 17-year-old kid. At the right moment, they tossed him into that pit. At just the right moment, the traders came by who would just so happen to end up in Egypt where Joseph would connect with Potiphar. That would wind up landing him in prison at just the right moment as these other servants who just so happened to have weird dreams that they couldn't understand, which just so happened to have... Joseph's specialty written all over it, which would then lead to Pharaoh's palace because he was having, you guessed it, dreams that he couldn't understand, which then enabled Joseph to be put in a position that would inevitably save countless lives. This man went from a pit to a Potiphar to a prison to a palace to a place of power, all because God had a plan. It's not random. It's not coincidental. It's not accidental. It's not incidental that you're in that class, that you're at that job, that you received that diagnosis, that you've got your own pit or your own prison that you feel stuck in because God is working things together in a way that you can't even imagine. At the fullness of time, Jesus came to this earth. At the right time, he laid down his life for the ungodly. This storyline was 20 years in the making for Joseph. Some of you hadn't even lived that long. And you're worried about calling. You're worried about purpose. You're worried about paths. You're worried about plans. Some of you have not lived as long as it took God to develop the design of Joseph's life. So slow down and calm down because God has a design in place. And if you are walking with him and if you are seeking first his kingdom, then the steps of your life, I can assure you, are falling into the exact order they're supposed to. God has a determined order with the stuff that happens in your life. Why? Because he's going to use that to produce a rendered outcome. It's the last thing I want to show you. None of this could have possibly been perceived at the time Joseph was going through his trials, but God's design was at work. There is a reason behind all that he does and allows. The entire time God was positioning Joseph to help produce an outcome. And eventually it all came together where Joseph could see the big picture. And he realized before his brothers, who show up a few chapters later because there's famine in the land, and they're searching for food. And they're trying to figure out what in the world are we going to do now because we're in trouble. And we don't know what to do and we don't know where to go. And in Genesis chapter 45 and verse 4, after his brothers have shown up and they haven't recognized who Joseph is, he breaks down and begins to have just a moment of emotional unburdening before his brothers, recalling all that they had done to him, all the ways in which they had treated him. Having those memories brought back up when his brothers showed up, having those memories pop back up of how they had treated him, of how they had thrown him in that pit, of how they had conspired to kill him, of how they had sold him into slavery for 20 shekels of 
silver and then lied to his father about what had actually taken place in his life. All those things begin to flood back into Joseph's life. And you would think, man, if somebody had treated you in such a way, then when you had the opportunity to exact your revenge upon them, you would take advantage of it just like that. Joseph is in a primary position to do one of one thing, to do one of two things, either extend wrath or grace. Sounds like a familiar storyline with God dealing with a rebellious people. And an opportunity arises where either he could extend wrath for their sin or grace. Look at what Joseph does in verse 4. He says, so Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near and he said, I'm your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. And he tells them, go back home and get dad and mom. And bring them with you because God has put me in this position to preserve life. As his brother stood before him, Joseph came to the, the realization that you didn't sell me here. God sent me here to preserve life to extend grace to people that don't deserve it. God has a design for good, and it's to preserve life. I'm sure that Joseph would have loved a different path to get to that point, one without pits, one without false accusations, one without family drama and prisons, but God's ways are not our ways. There's a reason behind why he does what he does. And God has a design for good, from the beginning, it has existed to preserve life. That's why Jesus came, because God had a design in place for the salvation of his people, a design for good, that they should not have to experience his wrath, even though they so fully deserved it, but instead could receive his grace, unwarranted and unmerited and undeserved and in our unworth. Christ came to this earth and lived a perfect, sinless Life and willingly gave his life on the cross so that we could then in turn experience God's grace instead of his rightful wrath that we had brought upon ourselves. He sent Joseph to preserve life for his family. He sent Jesus to preserve life for eternity. Let's do it. Let's do it. I didn't know how we were going to end the service tonight, I'm going to be honest. Usually I have a design for these messages, but I, di I didn't know. I didn't plan on having a response time tonight. I planned on us doing our groups. But, I don't know, around mid-afternoon today, something struck me, and I was like, I don't know, Lord. Just, should we take a different route? And I think that's what he wants us to do, so... We're going to have a response time here in just a moment, but I want you to see how this story ends. You've got to see the completion of the design. In Genesis chapter 50, at the very end, Joseph's father dies, and his brothers are concerned. They're like, oh, dad's dead. What if this is what finally sends Joseph over the edge, and he finally takes out his revenge on us? But look in verse 15. It says, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. 
And so they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. And thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Listen, you can trust God's design. You can trust his plan. You can trust his path. You can trust his purposes because they're good. And he has left us as his people here on this earth to preserve life by proclaiming life. That's why the church is still here. You want to know why Christ hasn't returned yet? Because it is an extension of an opportunity for us to preserve more lives. A perilously lost without Christ. Some of you may be here tonight because God in His grace has given you yet another opportunity to preserve your soul. Because if you were honest, you don't have a relationship with Jesus. Your eternity is not secure in His hands. And you may know all the tricks, you may know all the trades, you may do all the things, but you can do every bit of that. And if your knowledge of Christ has not moved to a relationship with Christ, then you are still right now in this moment just 12 inches from hell. But God has given you an opportunity to preserve life. Romans 8, 28. Here's how the design is completed. It's pretty remarkable, actually. Romans 8, 28 tells us that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So watch this, watch this. Stuff happens, right? Stuff happens. All the circumstances, all the situation, all the things of life that we endure, the trials, the troubles, the tribulations, the good times, the bad times, the ugly times, the beautiful times, life-giving moments, life-taking moments, stuff happens. All things, though. But that stuff happens in a determined order. God has set it in place by design to happen in the way in which it has happened. That thing's not happening to you right now, just at random. It's more than coincidence. There's a reason why you're in the season that you're in. There's a reason why you're in the place that you're in. There's a reason why you're around the people that you're around, because God has a determined order for it. So all things are now working together to produce a rendered outcome. So God in his design has an outcome that gets produced. All things work together to produce a good outcome from a good God. It's His design.
Hey, this is Trey Mitchell, college and young adult pastor. I just wanted to say thank you for listening. It's our prayer that God uses these messages in a way that challenge and encourage you to live for His glory. If you've never placed your faith in Jesus as your Savior, we would love to help you with making that decision. Just reach out to us through our webpage at underwoodbaptist.org. Be sure to check back in with us next week as we again encounter God through His Word here at Life.